On this week's Behind the Idea, we're covering the biggest pending IPO in the market, Lyft, and trying to place it on the investing map. I ponder what the landscape looks like when Lyft and Uber finally win. The thing that I'm interested about is that Lyft loses a lot of money, Uber loses a lot of money. You could imagine a world where 10 years from now, the whole game is just that Lyft and Uber are now the cab companies and you know different people are driving, but there's not... It's hard to see that there's suddenly some great margin because anybody with a car can then go and give you a cheaper ride. I, Mike tries to find the right comparison for Lyft and to see what its specific future is. Is Lyft not, at the end of the day, when all the apps and bells and whistles and pink logos and mustaches are removed, is Lyft not simply a logistics provider that connects freight operators, that would be people in their personal vehicles, with freight. That would be human beings. New IPOs lead to questions about buying or selling, but also about what they mean for our economy at large. Lyft is the first big sharing economy IPO, and it poses a lot of questions. Answers? We do our best on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzen. Today we are talking about Lyft, not yet trading, but its expected ticker symbol is LYFT. The ride-sharing app business has filed for an IPO. And Seeking Alpha author John Engel thinks the company may never be profitable. What's the proper valuation of a ride-sharing business that dabbles in scooters and bikes? We'll find out on this week's Behind the Idea. But first, a disclosure. Behind the Idea is a podcast that looks around the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. It will not shock you that neither Daniel nor I have any positions in Lyft, given it's not yet trading. And of course, absolutely nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any kind. It's the spring of ride sharing, baby. New York Times reported in late February that the Lyft Roadshow pre-IPO starts the week of March 18th. So they're probably going to be trading sometime in the next several weeks. And uh, more recently, Reuters has reported that Uber is looking to file its own S1 and prospectives uh, sometime in early April. So the two ride-sharing giants are ready to go public. And amid that, we have Seeking Alpha author, John Engel, who is a bit of a tech company skeptic in general. He's fairly bearish on Tesla, for example. So he he looks at these companies with a bit of a critical eye. Daniel, what's John's main first sort of point about the Lyft IPO or the business and its prospects? I think the point, the primary point, which is the question I think is the elephant in the room for these companies is the profitability and whether or not they can actually make money. The model is that you pay the contracted drivers a fee, you get a take of, or you get a take of the final ride sharing fee. And they just, they have not yet gotten much leverage out of their selling and marketing and their general and administrative line items, as he puts it. And so his argument is that the take rate, the gross margin and the underlying take rate on the bookings, the company lists their revenue, which is the percentage of bookings that they make. So bookings is the larger number. They list that, or he feels that there's a, they've reached something of a ceiling there on that part of it. And then they're not getting much leverage anywhere else. So it's hard to see what the paths are that would make this a profitable business. It's hard to see if you've got, they've got great revenue growth and in theory they're growing their gross margin, but if they're not getting any leverage further down the line, it raises questions as to when the payback comes. So I think that's the first point. Yeah. Okay. So basically the company may be in a bit of a bind in terms of finding areas where it can trim costs relative to revenues or expand revenues relative to the overall booking rate. 
I guess there's less of a question over whether revenues will grow overall, but eventually the company needs to reach profitability. And so somewhere along the line, the proportion of the costs need to come down with respect to revenues. So let's just, let's interrogate that a little bit. Uh, I have the 2018 income statement in front of me. And so just to run down a little bit, revenue is 2.2 billion basically for 2018. And then we have COGS at 1.2 billion so that's roughly 58%. That is has been compressing over the past three years. It was 81% of revenue in 2016, 62%, 2017, 58%, 2018. So there is some kind of trend going in the right direction with respect to costs of goods sold. There, there are risks associated with that, and I think we can get into that a little bit. And then operations and support as a percentage of revenue has declined from 28% in 2016 to 16% in 2018. R&D as a proportion of revenue has also declined slightly 19% to 14%. Sales and marketing <laughs> down from 126% of revenue to 37% of revenue. So they did get some, some leverage there historically. And I think that's really probably an important point here from my point of view and where I might challenge John Engel a little bit is on this question of whether there's any room. I think the past several years for Lyft, probably from around 2016 to to today, have involved a really strong growth push to try and expand their share of the ride sharing, taxi cab, sort of personal consumption, transportation market. And so I think that some of these costs are reflective of those growth efforts. And I'm not really sure that we can fully say that some of these costs, uh, these marketing costs are just completely sunk in the year that they're incurred, which is to say that I think more and more people since the early 2010s, Lyft has gone from being this weird company where the cars have mustaches on it to being a genuine app and a genuine alternative to Uber. And so I think that that awareness and that market penetration is sort of has yet to be fully realized versus the cost that the company has booked in terms of SGNA or marketing. What do you think? Well, I just wonder what's, yeah, I don't know. You you might have more sort of familiarity in the milieu, but I guess I wonder with the sales and marketing, I think you probably have two aims about that. And I hear what you're saying about branding, especially given that Uber kind of achieved verb status pretty quickly, right? I'm going to Uber somewhere or whatever. I don't know if it's a transitive or an intransitive verb, but the- I'm going to Uber you. I'm going to Uber, I'm going to Uber my mom to the airport. Yeah. yeah. I think more, I'm going to, let's Uber, take an Uber. It, yeah. It might not quite have verb status. I think take an Uber. I think it's still not, down. not quite there. Let's so it Uber. might be more, so maybe bet, may, maybe more like uh Uber Ramos. It's, <laughs> No, it's actually so. So I don't know if we'll get into this. It's actually quite a hot topic in Spain right now. The I was in Madrid, f- coming through Madrid on a trip in January, and we couldn't get a. Ca- there was a cab strike because of the entry of Uber and Cabify is the other company is a I think a Madrid based company, and so the ride sharing is coming here, and I don't think Lyft is here yet. I think they are only U.S. and North America focused. But so yeah, that's there's we can get into the that sort of regulatory climate second. But I want to stay on that for a second. Wait, so the ride sharing apps are coming to Spain, and the response of the taxi drivers was to go on strike. They were demanding that the I don't I'm not fully steeped in what's going on, but what I know is what they got. For example, they stopped striking in Barcelona. I don't think they ever struck in Valencia, where I live. They they made it a rule to that you can't just hail. You have to hail at least 15 minutes 
or an hour in advance, I think is the rules to that, that were instituted. And I forget, I don't know where it stands in Madrid. It took a lot longer. Barcelona is a more left-wing government and Valencia currently is as well. Elections are coming soon, but yeah. So that was sort of the, the climate, but you know, the, if we are going to be here, the fundamental thing I just wonder about with a company like Lyft is you know, I understand that there are cities that the taxi cab service is not supposed to be very good. The only time I've used a Lyft is in Detroit. And I remember people just saying, you know, that's what you got to use. You don't use, or you can use Uber, but um, Lyft has sort of positioned itself as Uber, but we're not jerks, which I buy as a brand. But in Spain, like it, it's very easy for me to get a cab. I never, you know, we have to walk five minutes at most. We can order a cab whenever we want. And so I don't know what fundamental societal value it fills to have more people driving. And and I think it'll be interesting if we go into their S1 because they talk a lot about these things. Cities are designed for cars and they shouldn't be. And we want to, you know, all these sort of quasi-environmental things, but their business is about increasing the number of cars on the road and increasing usage. And whether or not, yeah, maybe there are fewer cars being used more, but it seems like that's contrary. So I guess that's, that's sort of, I, I didn't... But the sales and marketing thing, I guess, to tie back to that is that it would seem to me like we know what ride hailing is at this point. So it's not, and I'm sure there are parts uh, of the world, of the country that are still less familiar with it and cabs or driving yourself may still be a default. But I think it's, there's acceptance of what it means to just hail a ride. And at the same time, the question becomes, what is the so is the ongoing spend about market share or is it still is there still ongoing spend to grow the TAM here? And I guess that would be my question to tie back to the financials. Yeah. I don't know if I know exactly the answer to that question. But here's what I would say. I, I think my argument boils down to basically that. Lyft and Uber are category killers, and they've done the hard work of killing the category of taxis, at least to a large extent in the U.S. The, the taxi business is unlikely to return and overtake Uber and Lyft in the cities, at least where I spend a lot of my time, which is New York, Washington, D.C., etc. Basically, the argument is that they... They spent a lot on sales and marketing to raise awareness and to raise membership onto the, these platforms, the apps that people have on their mobile phones. And they've, they've, done, they've won a lot of the battle. So if that's the case, then I think some of these enormous marketing spends don't necessarily need to... They've 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 gotten the network effect going. So I think that you know there's a there's a case to be made that we kind of have, are are settling in on a duopoly situation where Uber and Lyft are the two main players in this market, and they're going to continue to capture share from taxis, and they're going to continue potentially to expand the market in areas like Detroit where there's less of a viable taxi option already incumbent. Okay. To so that that seems like there is an opportunity in your view for for them to continue to grow and I think we're not really arguing the revenue growth ourselves but John Engel's second point I think sort of hits on some questions around whether this is going to continue to be a hockey stick, right? That's that's sort of where he goes next. Yeah, yeah. I think the next issue is that sort of if you think of this in terms of layers, so the top layer of the business is people booking the ride and paying the fare that then the driver and Lyft sort of divide among themselves. And I think Lyft's take of that is somewhere around 26%, 20% somewhere in that range. So for every dollar that a customer pays the Lyft driver, about 20 cents, 25 cents goes to goes to Lyft and the rest goes to the driver. 
The question is, and John points out, there's a kind of cohort analysis where that shows, and he cites FinTwit power user, modest proposal, at modest proposal, shout to modest proposal. One of the most polite and I think actively engaged in the process of looking at companies on FinTwit. So, but he looks at it and modest proposal does this kind of cohort analysis where he's gesturing at, and I don't fully understand the concept, but basically there's an issue of a kind of fall off in terms of the amount of usage growth that each individual user let's back up. So part of the, part of Lyft's growth story is that they acquire users. That's one component of the growth. So you get more users, the person uses the app, but then another component of the growth is the amount that each person uses the app, the number of rides per period that a person takes. And Lyft is pointing to these, these numbers increase over time. So they look at their 2015 cohort compared to what that same group of people did in 2018. And they found some enormous growth in the number of times that a person uses a Lyft once they've sort of joined the platform. It's like more than 100%, maybe even 200% growth, tripling the number of rides per period. And what Modest Proposal and John Engel seem to be pointing to is a sort of tapering off of that growth once a person matures on the platform. And to me, I'm not sure that that necessarily is a huge issue. It kind of stands to reason that there's a certain amount of use that is going to be equilibrium use for the customer. So if you eventually reach your, it's unlikely that there's an insatiable desire for Lyft. You get diminishing returns at some point. You need to go to the grocery store, you need to take it to the game or go out for the night, you need it for the airport or whatever. There are sort of these use cases. And once you check all those boxes as a Lyft user, eventually your growth rate in usage is just going to hit a natural sort of flat line. So I'm not sure necessarily that it's a warning flag that someone sort of reaches their maximum potential usage of the app over the course of say three years or whatever, or that they their growth rate declines there. I'd, I'd, I want to be careful to say that I don't think that that's the full extent of the analysis that Modest Proposal and John Engel are making. But that at least, I'd, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a red flag. I guess the question is whether retention is an issue and whether Lyft is showing churn. And I think just looking at the graphs from the S1 and the growth in revenue and the growth in the user base. And just from my experience, I, it doesn't seem to me like Lyft is generating a lot of experiences where someone starts using it and then churns out of their system quickly. So I'm less on that. I think where you might want to raise a question around this growth of of usage question is how much that affects the total addressable market. How much can Lyft acquire users from Uber, which is like five times the size of Lyft. Where where Lyft's ceiling, I think, is probably the key question here. And I think that's what they're trying to address. But here's my my question sort of is just around how people use this. So like, for example, I don't know if you want to speak for yourself or just for people you see, but how you say if people start using Lyft, they're going to most likely stick around with it as, and I guess my question is as when I'm making a choice and I'm deciding whether to own a car and to drive it or whether I'm deciding to hail a cab or use Uber or Lyft or bikes or scooters, what is the, like, why is that not a commodity is, I guess, my sort of underlying. And I guess that's because that's almost what Lyft's play is. They want to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation by disaggregating. There's a better word than that. Inter disintermediating the idea of owning a car with the idea of getting where you want to go by car. 
So, so how do you sort of think about that? And because I think that plays into the marketing question earlier and just a lot of the other churn and everything else that really matters for Lyft. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. Let's tackle it. I, so I'll just speak for myself first as a, as a very active user of Lyft, I use it in a lot of different cases. And I think that will reflect the kind of extent to which someone, I probably am closer to the power user cohort of the number of like frequency per user of Lyft. So I'll just describe a number of the different things that happen. So if I get out, if I go to a play with my wife and then we get out of the play and it's 10 at night and there's a long line for the taxi stand, then we'll walk a couple of blocks and we'll hail a lift and we can get one without having to wait in line. So that's an example of sort of blowing up the convention of how people take cabs you can get you can hail a lift just around the corner from the entrance of the theater, and that sort of is an increase in convenience. And on a sort of when you're from the perspective of lift competing with taxi cabs, another example is like if we're going to if we have planned travel of some kind, will you can hail a lift from inside your house, and usually the wait time is around five to 10 minutes. I think with taxi companies, I don't, I think they're still not quite as efficient or at least when, when I was starting to adopt Lyft, like the difference in terms of the instantaneous mechanism of signaling that you need a ride and getting someone to your location within several minutes was such an easier process than calling up the company and then having the dispatcher try to find a cab that was nearby. The geolocation is a major, I think, component of this. In terms of the question of the sort of broader aspiration, besides just like taking away share from cabs, there's this bigger aspiration you mentioned of becoming sort of replacing the concept of owning a car with the concept of just taking a ride with someone else who has the car. I'll do something like I'll take the Metro. I live in DC. I'll take the Metro out somewhere like Falls Church, Virginia to visit a friend. And when I get off the Metro, I still have about a mile and a half, two miles, three miles to go. It's an easy call to take a lift from there. I can hail it instantly and then I can complete the rest of my journey. Or I can take a bike share, which is another service offered by Lyft, the company, and I can bike from the metro stop to uh, closer to where I need to get to. So I think there is, I suspect knowing you that there's a little bit of cynicism around the idea of revolutionizing the way that people take a taxi cab. But at the same time, I think that there are use cases where people are more comfortable using a ride sharing app like Uber and Lyft than they would have been using a taxi. And the primary thing is just probably the difference of not of being more certain when the ride is going to arrive and not having to go through the process of sort of calling uh, up an intermediary like a cab dispatcher and then having them try to find a cab and then not really knowing when or where the cab is going to arrive and under what schedule. So that's how it works, I think, from my consumer perspective. What do you, so just, I think it begs the proverbial question, why Lyft and not Uber? What's the, is it because of the, what I mentioned earlier about Lyft positioning themselves as sort of the more wholesome company or what, or is it market control or what's your take there? Yeah, it is. The positioning of Lyft, I won't get into all the details around it because it gets a little bit hairy and I don't want need that sort of aggravation in terms of people contacting me. First, I'll commend Uber. Here's where I think Uber was good and valuable. And that's in its willingness to take on some what I see as kind of self-serving local municipal regulatory architecture that was primarily seen to be kind of collusive behavior between 
the industry incumbents, the taxi drivers and related service providers and the regulators, the local governments. You know, you have this uh, Professor Demoterin who has published a valuation piece on Lyft mentions in his piece that the value of a taxi medallion has basically dropped between 80 and 90% since Uber and Lyft entered that market. And I think the value of Uber was that they kind of just elbowed their way into these markets. They kind of ignored the law, but in a, in a Robin hood way, not necessarily in like a, a bad guy way, I guess. And that's just, Whatever you can get into the f- philosophy of whether we're we're living in a kind of Hobbesian Nietzschean world where just like everyone goes and takes it, or whether companies have a kind of obligation to obey laws, even if the if the laws are protective of economic systems that are inefficient and creating lots of problems for consumers. What Uber did was it won that fight, and it got enough people using the app that there were enough voters that there wasn't enough political momentum behind protecting the taxi cabs and the taxi cabs, their sort of cartel around transportation in the city collapsed and prices collapsed and it was beneficial to consumers. So that's where I think Uber, that's my, okay, good, good job, Uber. But I think along with that culture of sort of outlaw status, trying to sort of break the law and be sort of a hard hitting company that sort of devil may care about certain about rules and regulations came a lot of, you know, it's well documented the scandals associated with the um, Travis Kalanick. I think that's his name and so on. And there were numerous issues that arose. And I think it was sort of part and parcel with what Uber's main advantage was. And I think that Lyft from very, very early on, first of all, it just has like a cuddly image, which I care only a little bit about. It's got a pink logo instead of a black logo. It has the mustache thing from Times Immemorial. And and it was sort of built infrastructure to treat the drivers better. You know, you can tip, you're prompted to tip the driver with Lyft. And I think they were first to do that. I think Uber is moved in that direction since, but I haven't been using it lately. So I don't know what the experience is more recently. It seems like drivers are more or less indifferent between the apps. They'll just do whatever seems to be driving their business better. But there is a sense in which Lyft seems to be as kind of a fast follower. It probably just gets to benefit from the hard work that Uber did sort of breaking the law initially. But it also has been able to sort of aim itself as being this more kind-hearted application. And that's dumb, but that coupled with one negative experience I had with Uber where the driver just was like driving away from me at like 40 miles an hour and showed no sign and I canceled and then they wouldn't refund my money. That was my last experience with Uber and I just switched to Lyft. So it's a combination for me of like, the whatever corporate response responsibility story that is may or may not be BS coupled with one negative experience with the Uber app itself. And I was over to Lyft and I haven't gone back. So you are correct to say that I'm, I'm fairly cynical about the company, but I don't think we need to get into that because whatever, you can be cynical about lots of companies. <laughs> That's the, the world is ripe and rife with, cynicism. But my question is, or my thought, where I want to go with this is that, look, we talked about John's first concern is profitability questionable. John's last concern is cash on the balance sheet. And then with the growth concerns, whatever else. And I guess what I'm getting at is you've, you've, you've described, I think Uber really well. It's sort of broke open the market a little bit for what was a stodgy and closed shop and not and not serving people well enough right and so uber opened that up and created opportunities and so i think that's that's schumpeterian capitalism or whatever creative destruction but the thing that i'm interested about is that lyft loses a lot of money uber loses a lot of money at some point it becomes like you could imagine a world where 10 years from now, the whole game is just that Lyft 
and Uber are now the cab companies and, you know, different people are driving, but there's not, it's hard to see that there's suddenly some great margin because anybody with a car can then go and give you a cheaper ride. I, as I was thinking about explaining what happened in Spain recently, I, I was reminded of when I spent some time in Moscow over a decade ago. And I remember they, they basically had Uber then. You just stuck your hand out and anybody might stop and you might just go in their car if they wanted to make an extra ruble. And I think you what Uber and Lyft have brought is the ride-hailing technology and the geolocation, everything else. It's much easier. And I should say the app I use in Spain, Pide Taxi, which is with the tech cab companies, it we had one bad experience the day after a big festival in Sevilla and we couldn't we like ended up having to get a bus at the last second to get to our train so like I don't think that would have happened with ride hailing company but it's sort of like okay you've these companies funded by venture capital are going to hammer at the problems in the industry they're going to chisel out all these things open it up and make it so that there's a more honest level of service which is good for the consumer and you can argue about whether it's good for the driver or not. But then after that, like what else is there at that, at that point, it would seem to me like the story is now over the, the, there's no profit to be made in the end, I guess. I guess that's what my fear would be with these companies where I think John's article is on point. It's like, ultimately at the end, if they're just the new cab companies, are we, that doesn't seem to make sense as investment. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? ramble two two things uh good ramble so basically what are the barriers to entry what would protect profitability and margins here so i think it's important i think these are important points first i do think there's a network effect associated i think there's a critical mass of drivers you need to assemble and those drivers need to have a critical mass of users on the other side in order for the app to function and the reason for that is because in order for the drivers to use the app, they need to have a reasonable expectation that they can pick up a fare relatively quickly. Otherwise, they're wasting their time and they're burning gasoline and it's a money losing proposition or it's just not enough of an inducement for them to participate. So from the driver's perspective, they need to know that there are enough passengers out there using the app in order for them to continue to participate. So, you know, if if an upstart would be Lyft in Washington, D.C. gets started or a taxi cab company in D.C. gets started or tries to reclaim, they're going to have to surmount this hurdle of uh, getting people on to start using their thing when Lyft already works really well or when Uber already works really well. And then from the customer perspective, it's the same thing. They need to make they need to know that when they open the app, there's going to be a lot of drivers nearby using the app so that they can be reasonably assured that they won't have to wait 20 or 30 minutes for a driver to become available or for a driver to come by and come get them. So one, one of the main reasons that, this, that these apps have been able to kill incumbent taxi companies is I think also a competitive advantage over would-be challengers in the market and over the kind of thing like in Russia where you stick out your hand. That, And I'll get to that second point in a minute, but first just to reiterate, network effect, I think is a meaningful, you need, they've done the hard work of getting this multi-sided platform established where everyone kind of knows already and has confidence that the that they're going to do transactions at a reasonably rapid clip that is better than the alternatives available. So that's one, and I think that's pretty powerful. I don't think that that's something that's as e- easily replicable by competitors. And I think it does eat it, it does serve to bolster margins a little bit to generate some level of profitability. And I think that's partly why we're seeing more or less a duopoly in the market. That's more or less why Lyft and Uber are really the only two ride hailing companies of any meaningful consequence in the U.S., uh, the second is to this question of putting your hand out and then anyone might stop. I, at least in the U.S., culturally, getting I think one of the big hurdles was getting in a stranger's car. And now we do it all the time, but I think we take for granted how weird that was a decade ago. It was something that you never would do. It's something that you know parents 
told their kids from age four to as soon as they were sort of old enough to get into a car, don't get into a car that someone else beckons you to get into. There's a giant cultural norm against that. And what Uber and Lyft have done with admittedly some big missteps and some errors in terms of vetting drivers or some really bad consequences for some of their passengers. Overall, they've established a level of trust among consumers in the platform that they've, that the right, that the drivers are sufficiently vetted, that if their ratings are, are poor enough, they'll be booted off the platform. And I think that level of trust is a source of brand moat for these companies that may not also not be replicable. So I think there are two things. The network effect is huge because it ensures that the transactions will happen quickly enough that it's worth it for everyone to do it. And the trust is there that you can just, it's sort of replacing the, the yellow cab because it's yellow and because there's like a license, I know that it's safe to get into this person's car. The same thing is now true of Uber and Lyft that because they're, because you've contacted them through this app, there's some level of vetting and security and quality control of the ride itself that is a part of the experience. So I'd, I'd push back on the notion that this is just a wholly competitive market. I think what we're going to see is that it's going to be a concentrated market with, with probably one or two key players at the end of it. And, and if these guys achieve the sort of size that they are, and we're talking about potentially a hundred, two hundred billion dollar valuation for Uber, then we start talking about they can just acquire would-be competitors and work a kind of Facebook or Google thing where the the incentive system is shifted so that people who would normally have tried to displace these companies actually just aim to be acquired by them instead. So I think it's actually, and I think that gets to another point, which we can talk about a little bit. I think there is a long-term business model here. That's my argument is yes, there is a business model here. I think the I want to hear the business model in a second. I I just wanted to comment that the the cultural point is interesting to me because in our cultural memory, whether or not it was that what neither of us I think know whether it was really that widely done, but there's the idea of hitchhiking, which I think you associate with easy there, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you associate it with the beats or you associate it with the 30s, Hippies. maybe the Depression era or whatever. Hippies. <laughs> sure. You don't associate. You're, you're right. You don't associate with when we grew up. I think it would have been quite weird to hitchhike yeah. when we were growing up in the, the 90s. The 70s, really, all the serial killers of the 70s, I think, basically destroyed hitchhiking. That's who I, that's who I, I blame Ted Bundy. I, I blame Ted Bundy for the for the existence of Uber and Lyft. Basically, you it all goes back to Bloody it all goes milk. back to that goes back to those hitchhiker killers of the seventies when everything went south, and then generations later, here we are, where we have billion dollar valuations on these companies. Yeah, the seventies bloody woke up in bloody carpets. The the. The, so yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting that cultural component that you're talking about and this sort of, it, it was interesting. I think it was when we were talking with Priya Anand from the information about Amazon and the idea of Amazon has so much corporate trust among its customers that they customers will allow Amazon delivery people to go into their house when they're not there to leave a package. And so yeah, it's just kind of there's a late capitalism line in here yeah. somewhere that I'm not going to make, but I it's a I little just, gnarly. I wonder that we we trust we trust these corporations so much more than we trust kind of our fellow man, woman. And um, it's like these are the more increasingly the same people, these individuals, and then we put the overlay of like Amazon or Uber and Lyft on top of them and. I'm going there with the late capitalism thing. I think you didn't want to, but I do think that's interesting that uh, we only trust strangers if they're kind of wrapped in this corporate packaging first. But then there's also the question of 
the what that occurs then is the question of the the question of the am I just going to go for the lowest bidder? And that's where I wonder as much as you, I think you make a reasonable case for network effects and for the moat that could come out of that. But I'm also, we're also sort of conditioned to just not, you know, whether it comes to not paying for content or going for the cheapest deal. Like we, we say again, not to rant on this, but you'd say you want to protect local shops, but then we buy everything on Amazon, et cetera. It's just, it's just sort of, it. it's an interesting dynamic to me that's that's all i wanted to say there but what you said you see a business model like what do you what do you see you look into the mike taylor branded crystal ball what do you see as the business model so okay first of all i think there is a legitimate question i think here's the key question here's where i'll give john engel credit for finding this you know it looks like Lyft is looking to raise around $2 billion or so in cash from the IPO. And that's just going to go to general corporate purposes for the most part, in addition to doing some providing liquidity for key shareholders. They have around $500 million on the books now in cash. So, and they're, they're, you know, they burned, they had a loss from operations of almost a, mil, a billion dollars in 2018. So, at that rate, with that IPO, sort of at best, they'd have around a, a two, two and a quarter year runway if they continue to burn cash as they do. So when I say I think there is a business model here, I just want to couch that in this concept that they really do seem to be facing a bit of a near-term crunch. And they're going to have to figure things out really fast in order to reach an end state. But I do think there is an end state here that is the equilibrium where it's a profitable business. So first, before I go completely buck wild, I'll just mention our friend, friend of the show, expert, Ashwat Demoterin, who did some basic valuation and does find a positive valuation for, the, for Lyft. So I'm in some reasonably good company there, although I think he estimates that the IPO pricing is going to be higher than his valuation is. But so shout to Demoterin for giving me the courage to do what I'm about to do. And I'm crazy for this one. So if you made it this far in the podcast, get ready for a wild ride because I I found a comp, found a comp, Daniel, comparable company. Is it Uber? It is not Uber. It is not Amazon. What do we got? It is not eBay. Grubhub? It is not Grubhub, nor is it Blue, nor is it Blue Apron, nor Snapchat. <laughs> Which, just real quickly, so among tech company IPOs, Blue Apron and Snapchat, I think, just on the very face of them, were worse. Like Snapchat had negative gross margins, so it was like unclear whether the business model itself was whether there was. A, I'm a gross margins guy, and like whether the cost of goods you are ever, ever like would ever be lower than revenue and you'd have some room to actually operate. We don't have that with Lyft. You know, there is a gross margin, positive gross margin here. My comparable. Can I just. Yes. Can I just forestall you to, to let's, let's hold off. I want to forestall you because you, you called these all tech companies and I'm just reminded of, I read Ben Thompson of Stratechery had a post this week in response to Elizabeth Warren's plans to regulate tech. And I thought it was compelling because he made the point that tech is sort of a thing we use and it's a shorthand in this case for Silicon Valley funded companies. But, you know, there's technology in Lyft, but and Lyft also plays itself to be a transportation company and Snapchat at some point claimed to be a camera company. I just think it's interesting to sort of, I'm not gainsaying anything you'd say. I just wanted to sort of, shoehorn that in here because I it stood out. Well, I let's stick on. Okay. For one second, there's a reason we still group them all together. And the, the, the VC funding is an important part of that because they, these companies aim to operate, they tolerate operating at a loss for an extended period of time. They have long time horizons and they, they try to capture enormous share of their markets 
those are all sort of, I mean, they're anti-competitive, right? The basic VC model is to capture an enormous segment of a market at high profitability in, in the end state. And you just, the entire project leading up to that sort of status is doing everything in your power with a lot of patience and a lot of tolerance for short-term losses to reach this kind of end state where you're a powerful sort of market player. So even though the industries may be different, I think there is a common thread there. And I think Lyft and Uber share this common thread, even though they talk about being a transportation company or whatever. I think there is, it is fair to group tech companies together to the extent that they have this kind of business model that's focused at being having economic profitability and therefore being in some ways, you know, parts of oligopolies or duopolies or monopolies. I, I don't think that's a reach. Okay. That that's fair. But so, so let's get it. So what's your comp then? If is your comp a tech company? My comp is ticker symbol X P O XPO logistics. So <laughs> it's wild. I knew you'd, I knew you would get, you would, you'd scream. I know you're screaming internally. I know the, the listeners are screaming oh. XPO logistics, transportation brokerage. So here's the theory. XBO logistics is a, a large, I think it's the second largest transportation intermediary uh, logistics company in the world. And it does a lot of things, but one of the main things it does is it connects operators of vehicles with people who need and businesses who need freight moved around. So my question to you, Daniel, and my question to you, the listeners is, is Lyft not at the end of the day, when all the apps and bells and whistles and pink logos and mustaches are removed, is Lyft not simply a logistics provider that connects freight operators, that would be people in their personal vehicles, with freight, that would be human beings trying to get to the airport, to the bar, home from the bar. I submit to you that at the end of the day, Lyft is XPO logistics and its equilibrium business model will share many of XPO's ultimate business characteristics. Like Lyft, XPO is an intermediary between consumer and pr provider. They have relationships. If you look at their website, their pitch to customers is very similar. We can do things efficiently for you. You can trust us. You can trust our providers. So if you are willing to accept my wild case that XPO Logistics is a reasonable comp for ride hailing companies like Uber and Lyft, then let's walk down. So I'll allow it. Oh, uh, good. Okay. You're not going to like what I do next, which is I'm going to jump down from the top line revenue number to gross profit immediately because I don't know what the cost of goods sold are for XPO. But interestingly, the gross profit number is around 20%, which is similar to Lyft's take rate minus cost of goods sold. So uh, there's just some sort of similarity between having a sort of enormous top line revenue for XPO and then getting on down to the revenue. You could make some kind of case that I'm not going to make that there's a true revenue number for XPO that's a little bit lower that maybe has something to do with a similar sort of take rate scenario. But either way, we're just jumping down to the cost of goods sold line or to the gross profit line. XPO's gross profit, 2.54 billion. SGNA for XPO, 1.75 billion, 69%. Operating income, 797 million, 31% of gross profit. Net income, 444 million, 17% of gross profit. So my argument now is that the same sort of equilibrium business model is available to Lyft. Lyft's gross profit 2018 was $900 million. If we take the same proportion of gross profit and put it in SGNA, that's 621 million, which I think shrinks 
the SGNA line substantially. Then we get a positive operating income, not a negative operating income of 279 million. We get a net income of 153 million, which at a valuation of around 20 billion gives us a nice PE multiple of around 14 or 15. What do you know, Daniel? The IPO price may be efficient. That's that's not. Is, is it really 14 to 20 billion and 150 million? Is that what we're That's that's what we have. Is that where we Is my math that, So I think I think we've got a zero. Oh, so it's just a slim PE multiple, easy PE multiple of 140, 150. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, I mean, I I like the analysis. I I think it's I think that's a pretty because you know you're also taking it at a standstill when Lyft is no doubt growing. I'm gonna say no doubt going to grow faster than XPO, and so. <laughs> That's why, that's why we're multiplying the multiple by 10. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the O is there for. A peg of slides over. You get a peg of, of two. If you, you know, if it grows 70 X or something, good grief. I don't know. My math is terrible. (laughs) Yeah. No, but they are, I mean, they are growing, they are growing incredibly. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think, that's it's helpful right it's it's a really good model i think because it gets at what they are fundamentally trying to do and you can imagine that xpo does not need to market themselves very much you can imagine that they're not nearly as need needy for developing a brand identity i mean they've got i think xpo is a bit of a roll up and so it's a little bit we don't need to overplay it but the idea of they move stuff around they have a uh they have some expenses but you can sort of once you get past the expenses that actually go to moving stuff around and then you start to d- do math from there i think it does make sense that that's sort of where you want to get lift and i would you know i would consider your your model very bullish for lift regardless of what the immediate pe would be we're talking about i mean it's kind of we're talking about flipping from a net loss of 910 million to uh or yeah ni- about 910 million we're flipping to a gain of 150 million so obviously it's not going to happen overnight but that's if you're telling me that that's the sort of margins I can get 5 years from now and then in the meantime grow it at 30 to 40% kager that's that becomes something okay i and we could probably, yeah. I mean, we could do that math, but I bet it. I bet it starts to work a little bit more, and then it becomes just a question of how much is there going to be frothiness because everybody's excited about a big tech IPO versus cynicism because Uber has been known to be not making money for a long time, and now this is sort of the number two to Uber, and so they're sort of the same knock off the block. Yeah, I think that gets back to the main sort of question is like sort of twofold. One is, what do you think about the financial position? Is Lyft at risk of simply burning through all of the IPO proceeds and either needing to dilute shareholders further later on down the line or potentially just simply not having a business? And I guess there is, you know, um, there is some probability that Lyft is simply a zero, but I wouldn't put it I would put it as sort of the minority case, potentially. I think they have room to figure something out. And then the other question is, you know, do you, how much of this sort of hair on the income statement and these outside spend, how much, how much of that generates further incremental revenue down the line that sort of offsets it and how much of it uh, can either be tamped down through sort of efficiencies of scale or just sort of once the company decides to aim itself at profitability, how much flexibility does it have on these sort of gigantic cost line items? And I think that's the key question that any investor would need to ask. And then to put just I want to shout out De- Demoter in one more time. So just to walk through quickly kind of hit 
his thought process in his post. He puts the sort of personal transportation market at 120 billion and growing at a 10% rate per year. And if you think that the market is growing at 10% rate per year, then that's already a pretty nice tailwind to just be a participant in the industry. He puts a market share for Lyft at 40%, 20% equilibrium, gross receipts to revenue conversion, and looks like he arrives somewhere around $9.6 billion in sales at a sort of steady state, 15% operating margin, and seven years to reach that operating margin. So just that 15% operating margin, I think is kind of, it's sort of a similar, and he uses Uber as the comp there, I think. But it's sort of similar to this idea of taking some a business that's sort of more in the mature stage and getting there. So I just want to say that he also assigns a 10% probability of business failure when he does his valuation. I don't know how he factors that in, but just to give a sense that I don't think we can leap to the conclusion that Lyft is a zero, which I think is sort of, there's a tendency among bearish people around these IPOs to just see that. I, I, my case is basically that there is a positive value to this company and uh, we may see the price reach a reasonable valuation uh, sooner than people think. So look at that, arriving at a conclusion positive valuation of Lyft. I'll throw in a shout out to Professor Demodorin for using the phrase kabuki valuation when talking about what the IPO pricing is going to be <laughs> okay, like. Okay, fair enough. It kind of takes some of the wind out of my sails, I feel <laughs> so, like. No, 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 not at all. One last note I want to make. We, we have a... Um, a new author who's coming on board soon, who's doing some work right now on, a, and this may be published by the time the podcast makes air. So if it is, be on the lookout on Seeking Alpha for an article that dives into uh, Lyft's insurance costs and the sort of risks and opportunities that arise around the provision of insurance for drivers. Something we didn't get into a lot is Lyft's relationship with its contractors with the people who drive who do the driving and there's a number of wrinkles there including that so far they're independent contractors there are questions around insurance and who's liable if someone gets in an accident we have uh, hopefully an article will be coming soon if so we'll put a link in the podcast posting but uh, i'm just excited that we have a sort of new author who does this sort of more detailed exploration of that so be on the lookout yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But yeah, I think that's I think those are the big notes. I think it's I think it's interesting to watch and I think you've done a nice job of laying out how I think the investors have to decide whether your sort of analysis is correct as far as their business moat and their future competitive positioning and then also whether or not they have a path to profitability, whether uber xpo whatever else is a reasonable model and then from there it's just a matter of what you think the valuation should be and how how that matches to the pricing that the market gives you so yeah i think that was uh i'm less cynical about i i mean this is not the sort of company that i spend a lot of time on but i'm less cynical about lift as in potential investment as compared to sort of the role it play it plays in the in the market as a in the actual real world market but that's okay i'll give one final take home that i had from this this was a case where i thought really looking just one year out or two years out is going to lead you to the wrong conclusion here i mean they're going to be unprofitable probably for the next year or two and so i think there's there you need to be careful about just slapping a multiple on a company like this where you'll just get it does not compute. I think this is a case where it does make sense to look out a little bit further down the line. And that was sort of what happened with my thought process here, which I think means, you know, I'm growing and maturing as an analyst, Daniel. I used to just be a PE, PE slapper. 
and now I'm now I'm more of a you know now I'm more of a projector, cash flow projector, an XPO comparer, <laughs> a midnight toker. Those are three different. <laughs> Three different band names dropped in the last lines of the podcast. I think yeah, let's end there. All right, Daniel. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Any suggestions for people to talk to about Lyft or these new tech IPOs? Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. Feedback? Email us there or leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We're going to another big transportation news story next week, so stay tuned. This has been a Seeking Out production. Thanks for listening. See you next week on Behind the Idea.